Well, I want to start with a question this morning. We're going to be in the book of Revelation again. We, we read chapter 1. But I want, want to know, just want you to think about, can you remember something that you anticipated greatly? Maybe a vacation, maybe a new job, maybe getting off work from the job that you, that you have, maybe, maybe a new house, new, new opportunity. I, I, when I think of anticipation, I immediately think about children being in a car and, and they're, they're heading somewhere and they're in the back seat and you know the question that you get, right? Are we there yet? I mean, that's the question that you get. You parents know how it is. You, you don't tell your kids that you're going to the beach except like a week before because it doesn't matter if you tell them six months ahead. For the next six months, every week, they're going to ask you, is it this Friday? Is it this? They have no concept of calendar or, or time. They, they just want to know, are we leaving tomorrow? I can remember as a kid doing that to my parents. I can remember driving to Florida. My, par- my grandparents lived in Florida. And I can remember anticipating getting there. And I can remember the car ride feeling like forever. And then they're saying, well, we're almost there in anticipation building. We even invite anticipation, not just in our children, but, but in our adults. We do it all the time. I was getting a coffee this past week, and I noticed the, they already have the Advent calendar out. The, these, this, these little uh, uh, Christmas tree balls that have uh, 1 through 25 on it. And I, I didn't look close, but I assume the concept is you, you take one of the Christmas ornaments out and you hang it on your tree. And you're counting down to, to Christmas Day. We wrap presents. Why do we wrap presents? Don't you think, maybe you ever heard somebody who's like a Grinch, you know, wasting money on, on the wrapper before. Have you ever got a present that somebody wrapped in newspaper? I've seen that before. Why do you, why wrap it? Because you want to build anticipation, whether it's in the funny papers or whether it's in fancy wrapping paper. Just think how anticlimactic it would be if, if you show up at a birthday party and, you, and you, don't even, you take it out of the box that you buy it from the store in and you just say, here it is, you know. I mean, you're waiting. You want them to unwrap it. And again, you think of a kid who's just, just tearing through it. That's one of the blessings of Christmas. We have pregame shows. I mean, the World Series, they had the, the pregame to the World Series where it's just like four guys that are, that, that are sitting around behind a desk and they just talk for a half hour or an hour to build anticipation for the great event. You sing the national anthem. We have... We have throw out the pitch. We have the jets flying over. We get excited. Anticipation is wonderful. It's a wonderful part of life if what's coming is good. The opposite of anticipation is dread. And we dread something we know about ahead of time if it's bad for us. Don't you dread some of those tests that you have to take at the, at the doctor. You don't anticipate that like, yeah, I can't wait to go have my colonoscopy, right? <laughs> you dread those kind of things because you know what is coming. Well, the coming of Jesus Christ brings both anticipation and dread. It does. 
as God's children, we look forward to heaven and we look forward to the coming King. We're anticipating. We ought to be saying like little children, are we there yet? Is he, is he there yet? Is He coming yet? I mean, every day, we don't know the calendar. We're like little kids. Your parents tell you six months ahead. You don't know whether it's six months or six minutes. And we say, are we there yet? Is He here yet? We anticipate. But for those who don't know Christ, who have no assurance of their salvation, who are still in their sins, who have never been washed, who have never tasted redemption, don't know what it is like to have your conscience cleansed, to hear the name God and not fear, but, but hear the name God and think His friendly, smiling face because Christ has, has changed His countenance towards me. Those who don't know Christ, the thought of, of the coming, the thought of the end, brings dread, it brings sorrow. The earth laments at the coming of of Christ, because it means judgment for them. And I also just want to say as a side note, while, while we as parents get annoyed with our children asking over and over, if it's there yet, God never feels that way. In fact, God purposely stirs up anticipation for the coming of His Son. And He does that by describing in detail. That's really what the book of the Revelation is all about. It's describing in detail to build anticipation... For the coming of Christ, God wants His church to anticipate the coming of, the, of their King, of the Bridegroom. And He also wants those who are unsaved to be reminded and to realize what's about to come upon them. He's not doing that to be mean or cruel. He's doing that to spur you to look up, to look to Christ, because, because today is the day of salvation. When Christ comes, it will be the day of the Lord. It will be the day of judgment. But today is the day of grace and salvation. It's made freely available to you because of what Jesus has already accomplished on the cross. It's, it's, it's yours for, for, the, for, the, for the having. Just like judgment will be, will be yours on, on that day. Well, if you're not there, I want you to open to the book of Revelation in chapter 1. And I hope even as you listen to Tim, you're, you, you realize so much for the, the weak theology and, and, and the light-hearted stuff. Because right out of the gate, we're slammed in the face with, with Old Testament proper, uh, prophecy, with, with, with the preeminence of Jesus Christ. I mean, it is so deep, it's very difficult as I'm studying, going, okay, Lord... I mean, I could preach for five years. Nobody wants me to preach for five years on Revelation. So how do I take these verses with the depth and communicate it in a way that we can grasp it in one sermon, but it's not so, you know, so weak that, that we don't get anything out of it? Last week we saw the book of Revelation and the, the overview of the letter in verses 1, in one through 3, and, and that, was the, that was the introduction so this is the, the outline of, of Revelation, and there's the prologue, and we're going to finish that today. We, we looked at verses 1 through 3 last time, we're going to look at verses 4 through 8 today. That's the introduction of the letter, prologue. In verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 9 through the end of chapter 3, that's the unveiling. Remember, Revelation means an unveiling, so it's the, 
It's the unveiling, a revelation of the things that are. That's the seven churches, the letters to the seven churches. Then in verses, um, there's the unveiling of the things that shall take place after this. That's in chapter 4, verse 1 through 22. Forgive the, the, uh, the formatting up there. The unveiling of the things that will take place. That's the throne room. That's the trumpets, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls. The judgments, Armageddon, and then chapter 21 through 25, that's all things new. And then you have that, the ending, the epilogue. We're still in the introduction. Revelation is an unveiling and a foretelling. It's, it's, it's revealing Jesus Christ, what He's doing right now in the world, what He will do in the world, and how He'll make all things new. And it foretells us. And anyone who hears and heeds the letter will be, will be blessed. And while that's true, for anyone, the letter is formally addressed to seven churches in Asia, and John opens with an invitation to anticipate the coming of the king. Look at verse 4. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia... Grace to you and peace. He greets them in the Trinity. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne and from Jesus Christ, there's the Trinity, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. So He greets them. And then He gives, he gives them reason to praise Christ. Look at the next words. To Him, that's to Christ, who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's praise. That's a doxology. And since redemption ultimately points forward to when Christ will be with his church, he gives an announcement of the Redeemer's return. Behold, verse 7, he is coming with clouds. And every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so... Come, even so, amen. And he gives assurance that that's going to happen by Almighty God Himself. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. Verse 7 is actually the theme of the book. Jesus is the coming King. He's the, he's the revealed one, and, and, and it's foretelling His coming. And all of this builds anticipation, this this, this address, this greeting to the seven churches, this doxology, this praise, and, and this announcement of the coming king is to whet our appetite for what's coming in the book, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. If you're going to outline it, this is what I would say you find because there are three distinct parts in verses 4 through 8. There are three invitations to anticipate the coming king. The, the climax is that Behold, He comes with clouds. You have the greeting. You have grace and peace to His church. In verses 4 and 5, you have a doxology, glory and dominion to Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to His church, glory and dominion to Jesus Christ. And then you have the announcement of wonder and wailing to the world whenever He comes. And he begins with this greeting to his church, grace and peace to his church. Now, now look at verse 4, because it, 
it, it packs a lot of data up front. He gives us the sender of the letter. That's John himself. The sender is John. The receiver is the seven churches. The greeting that he gives to the churches is grace and peace. And that greeting is from the Trinity. The Father, Son, and, and Spirit is here. The fact that John identifies himself as the writer is significant because most apocalyptic writings were, most fake writings were, they, they would pick some fanciful um, person to, 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 to fake writing in their name. So it would be like Elijah or it would be someone else. John says, I wrote the letter. I received this vision. He identifies himself. And John simply writes what he received and accurately communicates. That greeting is to the seven churches of Asia. Did you ever wonder why seven churches and why these seven churches? I mean, these are not the only seven churches that are around in the 90s. I mean, this is, this is 91, 93 A.D. These aren't the only seven churches. I mean, Colossae is just a few miles away from Laodicea. And yet, there's only a letter to, to the Colossians. Jerusalem had an assembly. So did Antioch. So did Rome. I mean, you have some really significant churches that, that didn't get a letter. Why only seven? And, and, and why these seven? Well, the answer is both practical and, and also, also spiritual. It, it's, it's geographic. Now, I want you to pay attention here because you see right here you've got the, the Isle of Patmos. This is where John was, where he was exiled. And then you've got the seven churches here. And each of these churches are the, 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 the major cities of the Roman provinces in, in those areas. And they're addressed in geographical order. And they're addressed in the order that a courier would have taken the letter to. They didn't have FedEx in those days. And, and the entire letter of Revelation was carried to each one of, those, one of those churches. So first you have Ephesus. It was the port city. And that's where you went in for Patmos. And then you've got the Smyrna and then Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. And that's the exact order in which they're written in the book. The road system went from Ephesus to Smyrna over to Sardis and then up to Pergamon and they went back down. But you can see the order that's here. The second reason is spiritual. There's no need to address every single church because the issues and the message are representative of every church. And, and God knows His churches. The message in the letter are not only for these seven churches, but for all churches. All churches of that day, all churches of today. I mean, Revelation is inspired Scripture. I want you to look over to Revelation chapter 2, verse, verse 7, because this is at the end of the very first letter. And you don't want to turn there, you can look at it on the, on the screen. He ends the first letter to, to the church at Ephesus, He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to Ephesus. Is that what it says? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice it's plural. To him who overcomes, I will, I will give. And if you walk through each one of the letters to the seven churches, all seven of them in the exact way. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Plural. 
Each church was to hear a specific message to their assembly, but also to consider what God says to all of the churches, just like we find great help whenever we read the letter to the church of Ephesus. There's no textual reason that you can find in the book of Revelation to see these seven churches as seven periods of time or ages in church history or some other symbolism. It's a practical reason and it's a, it's a representational reason. These churches, and through them the church, is greeted. And You can turn back to verse 4 because we're going to look at the greeting. The greeting that is given is grace and peace. You probably just read over that like I do, grace and peace, because a lot of the epistles begin the same way. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And greetings are, are very common. We typically don't greet people in America. Grace and peace. If you go to, to France, Jeff and Jane not here this morning, you get greeted with a kiss, right? If you walk close to Tracy, you might get greeted with a kiss or a hug or something else. Greetings are normal. They're even common. And they're typical to, to a culture. So instead of saying namaste in, in Nepal, Nepali Christians say jamasi, which is Jesus is victorious, rather than I bow before the God within you. They say Jesus is, is victorious. If you go to Israel today, What's the normal greeting that you'll hear if you go to Israel today? It's thousands of years old. Shalom. I just got an email this past week from Boaz, and he started with, Shalom, my friend, from Israel. And then he wrote me a letter. It was customary. It's a customary Hebrew greeting. It's this word, Shalom, for peace, except it's in the Greek here. And it means peace within, peace that comes from God. It's a, it's a state of spiritual well-being. I wish you a state of spiritual well-being. This is grace and peace. And you only find that in the New Testament. In the New Testament, a new word was added to this, to this common greeting, and the new word that was added was grace. That's a wonderful word, isn't it? Grace. Grace from God. Grace and peace. The greeting after the Messiah had come and died and rose from the dead is grace and peace. In that order, look at it. Grace to you and peace. Grace from God brings peace with God. You have no hope of peace with God apart from the grace of God, but grace that comes through Christ brings peace with God. Grace is divine favor and peace is a state of spiritual well-being. And Bruce Metzger says in the New Testament... It always stands in that order, grace and peace. Because of God's grace, people can enjoy peace. And it's because of God's grace His people can enjoy that. And that comes from the, from the entire Trinity. Look at this. Grace and peace to you from Him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne and from Jesus Christ. Him who is and was and is to come. The Spirit is the seven spirits before His throne. And the Son is, is Jesus Christ. What is this Father who is and was and is to come? It's very significant. 
Man, I could just just rattle on right now. It's a paraphrase all the way from the statement in Exodus. The one who is and was and is to come. It's a paraphrase of I am who I am. It's the, it's the, it's the word, the name of God, Yahweh. Revelation is chock full of Old Testament imagery, and here is one of the first ones that you see. Grace and peace from, from the Father, from, from Yahweh, the one who is and was and is to one. Think about this. The self-sustaining one who greeted Moses from the bush greets you this morning with grace and peace. And then it says it's from the, the perfect spirit, the seven spirits who are before his, his throne. It's in reference to the Holy Spirit. Seven has special significance. Now, don't any of you go out and, and play the lottery, 777 or anything else. Don't believe all of this numerology garbage that you find out there. There's some kind of Bible code, but numbers do mean certain things in, in the Bible. There's seven days of creation. The Sabbath is on the seventh day. The year of Jubilee is, is seven. And you're going to find the, the number seven all through the book of Revelation. Seven horns, seven eyes, seven golden candlesticks, seven angels, seven churches, because seven represents God's perfection or completion. And so here you have the seven spirits. You'll find the Holy Spirit. Obviously the Holy Spirit is one, and you'll find Him identified the same way later in the book of, of Revelation. Now here are the seven spirits before the throne. But I think even more significant of that is where it is found in the verse. Grace to you and peace from Him from Yahweh, and from the seven spirits, and from Jesus Christ. You see it sandwiched in there between the Father and the, and the Son? It's after I am that I am, and before Jesus Christ. And normally when you see that, it's the Trinity. It would make no sense to bring grace and peace from seven angels or seven messengers. The Spirit brings the greeting of grace and peace, and that grace and peace comes through the work of Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ is listed here. He is the faithful witness. Jesus is the one who faithfully reveals God to us. Isn't that what the book of Hebrews says? You want to know who God the Father is, what He looks like? Look to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one that reveals God. He's a faithful witness, and He witnesses to us in truth. Jesus is also the firstborn from the dead. He's the prototokos. He is the preeminent one. This doesn't mean like He was the first one to rise. This means because of the resurrection, He is preeminent. He was exalted through the resurrection. God declared that Jesus was not a heretic. He was exactly who He said He was through the resurrection. He exalted Christ through the, the resurrection. He's the firstborn from the dead, and He is also the ruler of the kings of earth. Vladimir Putin thinks he's a tough guy. I know King Jesus, and every knee will bow. Every dictator that's ever lived that ever will live. Jesus Christ is their king, whether they acknowledge it or not. And one day they will acknowledge it, and one day he's coming. And when he comes, all of the petty kings of the earth will bow before him. He's the sovereign over all. These are the, the, the threefold title that he gives to, to Jesus Christ. Talk about a praise factory, Adam. That should make you shout. And that's exactly what John does. He praises Christ. Look at what he, where he goes in verse 5 at the end of it. After he gives this threefold title of Jesus, he says, To him, that's to Christ, who loved us and washed us from our sins 
in His own blood and has made us kings and priests to God and the Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's, it's praise. It's a doxology. He goes right from the greetings of grace and peace to the church, from the Trinity. He spills right into praise for Jesus Christ. Glory and dominion to Him. Glory and dominion to Christ. Doxology is a statement of worthy praise. Doxa means praise, and logia is to say. It's to say praise. John is saying praise. Do you praise God? You praise God with your mouth. You also praise God from your heart. You praise God with your mind. I mean, think about it. When you think about God, you think about what He's done and who He is, your mind connects to your heart, doesn't it? It should. If you're just... If you're just praising or doing things and you're not thinking about it, that's not legitimate praise. That's just an emotional response. It's just emotionalism. But God gave us emotions and you should praise and you should be be thrilled and happy, but it's connected to your mind. You, You begin to think. And that's exactly what John does about grace and peace. And then he begins to praise. He says, give praise. Speak praise to to Jesus Christ. And you are to praise Christ for the work And you're also to praise Him for the results of that work. Look at this doxology here. John can't talk about grace and peace without thinking about Jesus and giving Him praise for what He's done. And He praises Jesus for His work here. To Him who loved us and washed us from our sins, freed us in His own blood. There's the work. He loves us. And He washed us from our sins. That's the work that Jesus accomplished. That's why He's praised. And look at the result of Jesus' work. And in verse 6, He's made us kings and priests to His God and Father. Jesus is praised for the result. We've been made a kingdom of priests. We're made part of a kingdom and we have a function in it. We've been freed from sin and we've been made servants of God. And our position or priests. I mean, this basically is a repeat of 1 Peter chapter 2. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once that you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Does that not make you want to praise God? Jesus loved us and washed us by His work on the cross. He changed our destiny. We're no longer enemies. We're no longer alienated from God. We're, we're, we're His kingdom and we're made His priests. And all of that is, is a fulfillment of a covenant promise that goes all the way back to Exodus, Exodus 19. So one of the primary covenant promises that God made to to Israel, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God chose Israel out of all of the other nations to be a special people. And they would be His people serving Him in the world and He would be their God. You'll be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And how's that going to happen for Israel? Paul says not all Israel is Israel. Well, Isaiah 61 declares to us. You remember Isaiah 61 when Jesus picks up the Isaiah scroll and he begins reading from the Messianic passages that are there? 
and he says the Messiah is going to preach the good news to the poor. He's going to bind up the brokenhearted. He's going to loose those who are bound. Verse 6 gives us the Messiah's work. You shall be called priests of the Lord, and you shall speak as ministers or, or servants of God. This Jesus, this Jesus who accomplishes these things, the result of Jesus' work, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And this same Jesus is coming again. So He rolls right out of that into an announcement. Grace and peace to the church. Glory and dominion to Christ. And wonder and wailing to the world is how John Wesley Appetite the reader of this book. John's focus on the redemption of Christ naturally leads us to his return. If you're a Christian, you shouldn't always be looking back. And there's a number of things I could say about that. You're forgetting those things which are behind. You can get so bogged down thinking about the past sins that you committed that God forgave you from that, that it will cause you to stumble and not be able to be used for God. You're, you're, you're to remember what Christ has done at the, at the communion table, but you're also to do what? You're to do that. You're to proclaim His death until He comes. You're, you're to look ahead. I mean, the reason that He saved us was to use us now, and then that's for His, his coming. And, and John focuses on the return. Verse 7, Behold, He is coming with clouds. Only this time He comes, it will be in triumph. He will take His rightful place as King, and every rebel will be called into account. And John starts with this word, Behold. It's, a, it's, a, it's an arresting call to attention. Now, if you're ever at Timberlake, and you're mingling around, and you're not paying attention, and all of a sudden you hear a blood-curdling scream, it's probably Tracy, and Rick Boyer's probably came up behind her and scared her. And I can be really mean and, and be in a, in a truck, and, and she'll be walking in front of the truck, and she knows the game, so she'll look right at me, and I can be looking right at her, and I can beat the horn, and she'll, and, and she'll yell. That's the idea of this word. It is mean. So I don't do it all that much, and I always ask for forgiveness, right? It's an arresting call to attention. I mean, think about this. Greetings, grace and peace to the church from the Trinity. Praise to, to, uh, to Christ for what He's accomplished and what He's done. Behold, arresting attention. He's coming in clouds. This is the... the, the the word behold is the first of 25 uses in Revelation. And John is unveiling the announcement that Jesus is, is coming soon. This behold, He comes is in the present tense. The idea literally is He's on the way. Behold, He's on the way is what John is saying. I mean, there's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of, of, of imminence. And Jesus is coming soon morning or night or noon, many will meet their doom. The trumpet will surely sound. He's coming. He's already on the way. 
And the one who is coming is, is God, and He will bring judgment with Him as, as foretold by the, by the prophets. Verse 7, Behold, He is coming with clouds. John mingles here a prophecy from Daniel and Zechariah. Behold, He is coming with clouds, and every eye will see Him. In Daniel 7.13, in the, the vision of the four beasts, he saw one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. In clouds is, is the presence of God. Behold, He's already on the way. God Himself, His presence is coming. And every eye will see Him. And watch this, even they who pierced Him. And with that, he brings in Zechariah 12.10. The prophet Zechariah says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look upon me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. They shall repent as one mourns for an only child, weep bitterly over him as one weeps for the firstborn. And just as Zechariah prophesied, John says, On the day of the Lord, the inhabitants of Jerusalem will look on the one whom they've pierced and they'll mourn for him. Now I want you to notice that there are two groups of people here. Behold, he's on the way, God himself. Every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. All the tribes of the earth is just a repeat of every eye. Every eye... And of those eyes, there are going to be the eyes of those who pierced Him. That's the Jews. And then all of the other tribes, the Gentiles of, of all the earth. The Jews will, will wonder. At the second coming of Christ, both Daniel and Zechariah, that's the day of the Lord, it's judgment. And at the, the day of the Lord, every eye will see Him. The whole world, even... The Jews. Israel's blind today. There are obviously some that have embraced the Messiah, but the vast majority, if you go, they reject the Messiah. When Jesus comes again, even they will see Him. The veil will be taken away, and they will see Christ for who He is, and they will wonder. And God still has a plan for Israel. And when Christ comes again, He'll pour out His judgment on the earth and He'll gather Israel for the kingdom. And that's exactly what John is saying here. The believing Jews will wonder because they realize that they rejected and killed their Messiah. And that's exactly what Zechariah predicts. They'll mourn in repentance. When you repented of your sin, you didn't say, yeah, I'm repenting of my sin, right? You loathed yourself. You loathed your sin. You looked inward and you said, I am unworthy, I am filthy, I am dirty, I have nothing to offer God. You mourn. And the Jews will mourn. But then that mourning is turned to gladness because of the forgiveness of Christ. They'll mourn and many Jews will be saved in the tribulation at the end of it. And then the unbelieving world, the all the tribes of the earth will, will mourn. They'll wail. 
because it will be too late to repent. The Jews, it will be under repentance. And for the unbelieving world, it will be because of the wrath that awaits them, the wrath of the Lamb that you're going to see, that we're going to see as we walk through Revelation. But the church, the church is to rejoice. The church doesn't have wonder or, or, or wailing. The church has, has grace and peace. You have grace and peace because of Christ. We rejoice because we've been loved, saved, and now we're priests of the kingdom and we long for our king to come. And so John says at the end of verse 7, even so, or so it is to be, amen. And that's what we say. There's our rejoicing. Even so, come. And just to make sure that everyone knows it will happen, God Himself assures it in verse 8. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the Creator and the goal of creation. I'm the beginning and the end, says the Lord. And then He uses this term for Yahweh again, who is and was and who is to come, the Almighty. I'm the Lord, the covenant God Yahweh, the Almighty, the sovereign, total sovereign power. I will bring to pass what I have declared. Anticipation. If it's good, is it good for you? Can you anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ? Can you hear grace and peace and know that you have peace with God because of the grace of God you've tasted, you've experienced? Do you know Christ? Do you know the Christ that, that's, that's outlined here? The one who, who loved you, who pursued you, and the one who washed you from your sins. Are you washed from your sins? Do you know total and complete forgiveness? Do you serve God? Do you, do you find a desire in your heart for His kingdom to reign? We, we pray. Um, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It, we, we pray. God's will is done in heaven. Lord, I want it done in my heart. I'm your servant. Do you still serve sin? Are you enslaved to sin? Or are you a servant of God? Do you love and long to obey Him? Those are evidences of the salvation. If so, you have much to anticipate. Church, as we go into Revelation, we, we let us sing praise to His name. Let us speak worthy praise for the one who loved us and watched us. And because of that, we serve Him. But if you don't know Christ, Hear what God says today. Behold, He's already on the way. And when He comes, the full force of His undiluted wrath will be poured out on the earth. And you will cry out for the rocks and the mountains to fall upon you, and that will only be the beginning. That will only bring about physical death. Because after that, in the final resurrection, you'll be raised before the great white throne, shown how you have no right to be in heaven and don't deserve it, and that you rejected Christ, and you will agree on that day. And then you'll be cast into the everlasting lake of fire. Hell is a real place. 
And yet Jesus is a good Savior. Today is the day of salvation. And He'll receive you if you'll repent and believe in Him. Let's pray.